Hi, everyone. This is Andy Hagens, co-founder of Wealth Channel. On May 4th, we hosted our Alts Expo event at Wealth Channel. It was a great day and a great event. It was hosted by my business partner, Jimmy Atkinson, who's a true pro as always. And we had a large, very engaged audience of high net worth investors and family offices who attended and participated in this online event. It was really so much fun. The podcast episode you're about to hear is the audio version of an educational panel that I had the pleasure to moderate at this event. The panel was titled Capital Preservation Strategies for Uncertain Times. And our panelists shared some great insights. You know, capital preservation is always such a focus for family offices and ultra high net worth investors. And I think a lot of other investors can really learn from the strategies that the most sophisticated investors use. So I hope you enjoy the panel. And if you want to check out any of the other recordings, just head over to the Wealth Channel website at wealthchannel.com. Thanks and enjoy. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. What are the what are the most important? What are the best capital preservation strategies for uncertain economic times? Obviously, that describes the times that we're in. That's the question that we're going to discuss today. Joining me are three distinguished experts bringing their insights. I'm going to introduce our panelists first, and then we're going to dive into these questions. Very important questions. Uh, first up is Josh Cantwell, CEO at Freeland Ventures, and Josh. I know you have a real estate investment firm as well as a coaching program, a very popular podcast. I know a long running podcast is very popular. And I know that you know a lot of the movers and shakers in the industry and high net worth investors. So really welcome your insights. Welcome to the panel. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Andy, Jimmy, thanks for having me on. Uh, look forward to talking about some of these strategies and you know, our expertise, our niche is in multifamily. Um, there's a lot of different strategies when it comes to multifamily. Uh, there's a lot of boom bust markets when it comes to multifamily. Uh, we focused on very stable cash flowing markets like the South, the Southeast and the Midwest. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we can't get enough multifamily with our audience. It's what I've learned over the years working with Jimmy. Uh, next up is Danny Roisman, founding partner at BrainVest Wealth Management, which is a multi-shore multi-family office serving ultra high net worth clients, multiple countries around the world. And Danny, when I had you on my podcast, we talked all about capital preservation. That planted the seed in my mind. I need to get Danny back on for this panel at our upcoming event. So welcome to the panel, Danny. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me again. And thanks, Jimmy. What has been a great uh, uh, you know, program so far. So congratulations. Uh, well, happy to be here again. Uh, love to discuss capital preservation strategies. I think lots of people talking about multifamily. I'm going to try to bring something a little bit out of the uh, the box as well, so we can discuss other uh, opportunities as well that that might make sense. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to the discussion. I think it's going to be great. Thank you. I, yeah, I, lo I love it. And yeah, to be clear, we love multifamily, but there's a lot of other you know exciting asset classes. And I mean, even today at this show so much private credit, you know, so much interest in that asset class. And Danny, I know you also have other asset classes that you like. So uh, I won't spoil that. We'll, I'll leave that for my, my first question to you. But last but not least is DJ Van Curren, 
who is co-founder at Evergreen Property Partners, as well as founder of the Family Office Real Estate Institute, and obviously capital preservation, a big focus for families. DJ, you are as plugged into the world of family offices as anyone in the universe. So welcome to the panel. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, we, after working for a number of prominent families, Evergreen, we do invest on behalf of families, but because of that, along with the experience in the Family Office Real Estate Institute, I'm going to try to bring a, a broader perspective from families and, and you know, some of the pros and cons and, and how they invest and, uh, you know, different ways that uh, families have accomplished that preservation and how they have to, as we'll call I love it. So, you know, I, I love, you know, high net worth investors learning from the ultra wealthy, but DJ, I think you just kind of teased us. You're going to give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. I love it. You know, get, give us all that transparent information because it's all important, right? The wins are important, but also the pitfalls and how to avoid those pitfalls. So before we dive in, uh, just a reminder, if you have any questions for me or for our panelists, please do use that Q&A uh, function in your Zoom toolbar. For those of you who are just joining us, that Q&A icon can be found at the bottom of your toolbar towards the bottom of your screen. You can submit a question. We'll save a little bit of time at the end, hopefully. Uh, but the first question I'm going to pose to Josh first, and then if Danny and DJ want to chime in, please feel free. But Josh, where are we right now in the market cycle? You know, do you think we've seen the worst of the bear market, both in real estate, equities, or are we more in this late cycle environment where there might be a little bit more pain to come before we start to see the next expansion? Um, you know, I think it really depends on what market you're in. Um, you know, if you're in a boom bust market, let's say it's the coastlines or even the Southeast, which are typically boom bust areas, obviously those types of markets, uh, tend to rely on lower interest rates, um, population migration, income growth. There's a lot of different factors that go into that. Uh, a lot of different investors will buy into those markets expecting appreciation. Uh, if that appreciation continues, great. You know, those markets continue to expand. Um, the problem with those markets, and one of the markets that we operate in is Columbus, Ohio, which is as competitive as any Southeast boom bust, you know, type of market. Um, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of technology there. So I think it's very local. Um, you know, for investors who are looking for, I think, a, a, a more predictable approach, one of the things that we do that's not so market driven or interest rate driven is really focus on heavier value add. Um, you know, if we look at the ability to force appreciation in a property, uh, that allows us to really buy something that's more on the distress side, focus more on a heavier value-add construction play, which is going to be a lot less market-driven. Um, so I do feel like the recession that possibly might be coming is going to be very light. I do feel like our labor market is extremely strong. There's lots and lots of jobs available, even though the Fed's pushing interest rates up still as of yesterday. Um, you know, our, our, our type of investment strategy is going to depend on the heavier distressed value add type of play that we can buy at a discount. So it's, it's less determinate on the market. It's less determinate on what's going to happen in a boom bust market. It's much more of a cash flow play and a, and a forced appreciation play. So 
think it's a very interesting question. I think it depends on the strategy of whether you're going to be impacted by that or not. Um, you know, we've really focused on stuff in our backyard uh, that we can we can really focus on heavier value add. And so um, I think it's a you know, fantastic discussion point, tough to answer um, unless you're really more local to the market that you're investing in. Well, I think it's a fair answer, Josh, that, you know, it, it, it's in real estate, the cycle is going to be local. You know, obviously what I, I asked about both the real estate market and equities, equities being more national, but all real estate is local, right? And so some of these markets had much more of a boom. So then sometimes the bust is a lot faster. So they're probably all in a little bit of a different place. I, I kind of like your mindset though. Like who, who cares? You know, I'm going to sidestep the whole question with a different strategy. Sure. But Danny, how about you? You know, how about some of these other asset classes besides real estate? Where are we in the cycle? Yeah. I, well, okay. So I want to make sure we're staying on the cycle. Yeah. Sure. I, I, I want to touch that as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little bit more pessimistic uh, on where we are in the cycle. I'm very worried about what's going on in the credit market. Uh, I, we're still seeing a lot of small banks having big issues. I think we haven't seen uh, credit spreads widen up. Uh, you know, the, the differential between, you know, AAA and B. Remember when you are talking our, in our uh, podcast discussion that we saw that in 2007, we're seeing it again and hasn't opened up yet. So you, 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 you are not there. Uh, in the in the cycle when you when you see credit spreads uh, coming up, open and wide, uh, I think we, we, we're still going to see more pain, and that would in fact uh, impact the uh, the prices of any real estate equities, uh, fixed income, all the markets because there's still more more stuff to come. Uh, but again, uh, you have to do something with your capital, uh, so you have to put it to use. I think you know, uh, as Josh said, yes, uh, multifamily is a great place. We do uh, still believe that if you do locally, if you do it right, if you know how to buy it, and if you know how to operate low leverage, uh, good uh, uh, value add, I think you can still uh, you know ride the storm and be able to get to the other side. Uh, what I'm going to try to tell you is that maybe there's other options that we still believe that make sense that we look at contracyclical. So as interest rate goes up, if we invest something that relates to that in terms of like, if you have um, rates that are adjusted into SOFR or to uh, LIBOR, that as it goes up, it will increase your returns as well. Uh, that would help you, uh, 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 you know, increase your returns while keeping a, a good asset uh, while the interest rate going up. So we do like that strategy. Uh, one particular uh, asset class that we have been investing a lot and has been performing really well, uh, it's specialty leasing. Uh, so you do invest in uh, leasing of equipment that uh, are 100% uh, contracyclical, so they don't care about how the economy. So we're talking about uh, locomotives, uh, we're talking about uh, ships, containers, uh, we're talking about uh, search and has rescue helicopters, uh, barges that does maintenance into uh, uh, wind farms in the North uh, uh, Ocean, uh, North Sea, sorry. Uh, so there is other options that you can get. Uh, you know, it's still, uh, 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 you know, a kind of a credit, private credit lending that you have a, uh, a real asset uh, behind, that you have very good, strong operators. Sometimes they are even uh, uh, state-owned uh, or state-sponsored, so you don't have a risk of credit. Uh, the contracts are floating. So as interest rate goes up, 
you continue to increase your returns, uh, and we are seen in our distributions as well. Uh, and you are uh, not uh, related to the economy. If the economy is thinking, you know, thinking you're still going to be able to to have to salvage someone with a helicopter. You know, there's still containers going up and down. You still have, you know, uh, here in Europe, trains uh, moving around. So it's this is one strategy that I think uh, it does help a lot. Um, well, Danny, I'm st- sorry to, to jump in. I, I, yes, just, I think that's very interesting that you and Josh... Well, you both kind of cheated. You jumped ahead a little in the in my questions, but <laughs> I like it. But because you both basically said, you know, we there might be more pain to come, but we are investing in asset classes where it doesn't matter, right? They're they're un literally uncorrelated. And sometimes with alternatives, we like to say they're uncorrelated, but a lot of alternatives are still somewhat correlated or even, you know, very correlated to those equity and bond markets. You mentioned equipment leasing, Danny. I mean, that's very interesting. I remember when I started the podcast i was like well i know i know quite a bit about alts but i have some holes in my knowledge so i bought these books about alternative investments and they mentioned equipment leasing i'm like what is this i don't i don't even know this world exists so it's so interesting you know connecting with family offices and asset managers who are investing in things that a lot of investors don't even know about but dj i want to move on in a second to asset classes but dj i know you have some maybe interesting theories about market cycles. I also want to make sure that we get your take on where we are in the cycle. Okay. So everything that, you know, there's different cycles if we're talking about, you know, stocks or real estate, from my perspective, it's all about real estate. And so when you ask where we are in the market cycle, you know, and I've gone on the record for years about this, but we, we are not going to see a recession until probably 28 or 29. When you look, and and I'm saying that from the part of, you know, the, the real component of the market cycle, right? You go from phase one of the recovery to to the expansion, then you have the hyper supply, and then you go into a recession, right? Well, we're nowhere near any type of hyper supply at this point in time, and that's because uh, when you look at a lot of the markets, you know, that was Josh brought up, like Columbus, and yes, you do have a lot of local components of that. Um, but you have to look at the fundamentals. The fundamentals is that there's still an issue where there's, you know, housing shortages in certain markets. Um, people are having to rent because they either don't have the money, they got too much debt, right? It's too expensive for the housing. So you still have to look at the fundamentals. You know, where are the jobs? Where are people migrating to? What's the cost of living? What's the quality of life, right? Now, within the of where we are in the cycle, the reason why I'm saying is that we're still a ways out is because a lot of the fundamentals are still the same. COVID basically was a blip on a map. We thought there was going to be some issues, but it really didn't happen like we thought of. Now, what will happen and was talking to the, uh, the other day to the um, to the head of real estate at the Fed, and there is going to be a lot of banking problems. There are issues on the books that are starting to happen. And there's also, um, you know, banks have already started pulling back on some of the amount that they're lending. And you're going to get a lot of banks that are just going to shut stuff off, right? So how can you have, uh, you know, increasing vacancy, or you're going to have new construction that's going to be happening? So it's all going to be pulled back, which is going to delay an actual recession when everything is just 
I'm full bore, right? If we had kept going to where we were and the interest rates were so low, you're going to continue to have that building, which is going to create oversupply, which is then going to get us into an issue, which we're going to end up going into increasing vacancies, right? You're going to have more completions. And that's where the recession comes in play. So are we going to have a period of time that uh, there's going to be pulling back and there is going to be opportunity? Yes, there is. But if we're really talking about an actual recession, which was your question, from a real estate standpoint, you know, we've still got a six, seven year run until we're going to actually see that. And so you have to be patient. You have to make good decisions, which is what your whole topic of the show is about, is that how, how do you get through times like we're in, you know, with the forward curve and the interest rates and everything else. And how do we deal with that? So it's about getting through the hump. It's not about going into a recession. Well, DJ, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, to me, what I'm taking from your theory and, 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 and your points is, you know, we're just pushing forward some of the pain really. And I, you know, I felt like that's what the zero interest rate policy did. And it's, it's like, when are prices really going to clear? When are we going to have true, Right. Maybe never. Right. Like I'm 30, I'm turning 40 next week. Maybe I'll never see that in my lifetime. <laughs> True price discovery. But DJ, to your point, this leads to my next question. The value of patience for a high net worth investor or ultra wealthy investor, a family office in this time period, you know, the next 12, 24 months, should the goal be just to preserve capital? Should that be the main focus or alternatively, should we be looking at this uncertainty it's potentially an opportunity, right? Because where there's uncertainty, maybe there's fear, or maybe there's attractive opportunities. Are we are we just purely preserving capital, or are we being opportunistic? What's what's your advice to high net worths and and families? So that's a very interesting question. And from my perspective, it's not a twelve to twenty four months question. It's a lifetime question. It's a generational question. Seventy percent of families. And, and we're talking families worth 250 million or more, 70% lose their wealth by the second generation. 90% lose their wealth by the third generation. The average return for a family's portfolio is about 7%. And so the only way that you're going to maintain that legacy and that wealth for future generations is about maintaining and, and being uh, smart with what you're doing. And one of those things are actually holding on to assets, you know, and then it's a question of how do you get through it? Historically, uh, multifamily has never gone below 11% um, vacancy rate, right? So if you can get through 11, 15% vacancy, um, you're going to get through it. If you're always having cash flow and it's more than what the debt is, you know what? It doesn't matter if the, if the value is zero. You can hold until the market comes back and sell. Where people get into problems is where you're going to see a lot of this negative ish, uh, uh, negative leverage, especially in the real estate or the multifamily space, where people are saying, I'm buying at a five, I'm selling at a four and a half cap. Well, now what are you going to do when you have to refinance and you had interest only and you're picking up that refinanceable loan at a six and a half? You have troubles, right? So families need to really focus on maintaining at least a portion of their allocations for consistency, long growth, long-term growth. And that's the benefit that individuals, regardless of wealth, families have that ability to be patient. Unlike institutions that have to put money to work or certain funds that have to put it because they close after a period of time. So I think make good decisions, 
even if it's outside of real estate, you know, like uh, was being brought up a, a little bit before by Danny. But you have to make sure that you can last uh, through the storm. Understood. Well, Josh, that that kind of seems to dovetail with what you were saying earlier about some of these real estate. You know, there's still opportunity. You know, maybe some of these deals are in a situation where, you know, they have to refi and, and they're in trouble. Like, so, so do you see, you know, let, but I do want to ask about the next 12 to 24 months. I totally appreciate the long-term perspective, but I still want to know what to do now. Right. So is this, Josh, do you think this is a little bit more of a weighted out period and stay the course or are you actually seeing, you know, cap rates expand enough where you say, okay, this is the time, you know, this is where the money is made. Let's go. Um, well, look, acquisitions across the board are down substantially, like 75%, right? So the market's definitely slowed down tremendously as buyers and brokers and lenders recalibrate cap rates versus interest rates. So it's definitely slowed down tremendously. So the number of opportunities for a retail investor or an off, you know, family office or an institution to invest in multifamily is down because there's just not as many operators buying buildings. That's the direct impact of what the Fed's done with interest rates. Um, bridge lending, which as Danny mentioned before and DJ mentioned, bridge lending, that low cost, SOFR loan, floating rate loan um, is almost evaporated. Nobody's using that anymore. Um, and so, you know, deals that we would have seen a year ago um, or that we would have seen in multiple markets um, in Texas and Columbus and all over the place uh, where people were using bridge loans. Now it's very much a non-recourse agency loan with very low loan to value. Um, if you can find a place where you can still enter at a four and a half or a five cap and hold, it's a great place to preserve wealth for a family or a retail investor because they're getting cash flow day one. Um, and so that's the, that, that's the challenge of finding those deals. So if those deals can be found and the seller, the broker, the buyer can find a way to kind of meet and have that deal make sense, it's, I mean, that's a great investment opportunity for any investor. The challenge is, and for us as an actual operator that's bought you know dozens and dozens of these large buildings, it's really tough to find something like that that makes a lot of sense. A lot of buyers, a lot of offers. Uh, before there were 30, 40, 50 offers on a building, and now there's maybe 10. Um, and then there's other places that, you know, we were just in a, in a deal we offered on last week. There were 52 offers on one building in Columbus. Um, and so it's very much a deal by deal basis, it's very hard to find right now. Um, and really, the only game in town is something that you can buy with long term agency debt, not recourse, or if you're a local operator, maybe you can go with a recourse bank loan. But um, to Danny and DJ's points before, uh, this there is there is not enough supply to handle all the demand for housing. So uh, I do believe what Danny said is accurate. I do believe that if there is a recession, it's minimal. I do believe that there's long-term growth for a long time. So uh, again, the next 12 to 24 months, those opportunities come up, absolutely invest in them. Tougher to find for sure. Longer term thinking is what's going to win right now. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it, I am hearing, I think from all three of you, patience, that's a tough message for me. Not a very patient guy, <laughs> but it's a good message, right? 
So it's, I feel like, uh, you know, you guys are like my dad. I mean, that as a compliment, you know, like giving me words of wisdom. I, we, we've been in this situation before, like, this is the message we need to be preaching that just because you have cash doesn't need to be burning a hole in your pocket, right? The name of the game might just be to preserve it. And there's a better opportunity down the road. I, DJ, I, I, go ahead, DJ, real quick. No, I was just going to say, I mean, look, look at, if you just take a look at a couple examples, right? I mean, uh, talking to Peter Linneman the other day, he's talking about the importance of long-term, but who's the greatest investor of all time, right? Buffett, hmm. Warren Buffett, and he buys and holds. I mean, anybody you talk to that put, that's why there's like a, a janitor in Massachusetts when he retired at $30 million, he had bought GE, he bought just these big stocks and just held long-term. Unfortunately, our emotions get involved. Yeah. Well, on 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 the note of emotions, right, and and we're talking about uncertain times and fear, right? Because a lot of investors make bad decisions once fear enters the picture and human psychology. So, so Danny, I want to ask you this first because I know you know you started in wealth management in Brazil, where a lot of families in Brazil, ultra wealthy families, you know, they've seen hyperinflation, they've seen like what I would call black swan type economic events, you know, what are the main threats? Like if you're, if we're trying to implement a capital preservation strategy first and foremost, what are those, you know, top few threats that investors, families need to be protecting against right now? Is it the, is it the banks Is the bank balance sheets? Is there something else that should be on our radar? No, uh, actually that's, that's a very excellent question, but the worst enemies themselves, as you said, it's, uh, investor behavior like uh, the problem is it's like you know the FOMO the you know all the new names that they, they come up with the question is that if you have a portfolio strategy and it's well constructed and it's for long term if you implement it it's gonna work okay the problem is that people panic the people get scared that people always believe that you know that's the best next only opportunity that's gonna happen tomorrow just like you said, for the next 12 to 14 uh, uh, months, I would say stay in cash right now. You, you, you're getting more on, the, on, a, on a treasury bill than you get on a five-year uh, uh, loan, uh, bond, or, or wherever. So why do you want to rush to put money into use? I think there's going to be excellent opportunities, as just said. I think we're going to have a lot of distress because, as you said, banks are pulling capital back. There's going to be people that are not going to be able to service their debt in real estate, corporate in every single place that you can imagine there's going to be excellent opportunities and if you have your cash and if you are patiently enough to understand that you don't have to do the first deal you don't have to do the best deal you just have to implement the strategy that you have um you know planned and executed over the last 10 15 years uh i think uh, uh dj said a very interesting point um the long term way of holding wealth for a family is not to look at the short term is to really being able to have an asset allocation and say you know let you know i would say to my own say let to a professional to do the job uh so they will act rationally and not emotionally and then you don't you're not gonna fall into the trap of saying well you know should i buy now uh, or now I have to sell because everything is going to tank, and then you just you know do the the worst type of of of, of investments that that you possibly can. Uh, 
So I think it's a mixture of everything, what Josh said, what, what DJ said, what you said. But for me, the problem is that if you really want to preserve your capital, is investor behavior that really kills the returns. Well, I, I love that. I, and I, I think there's a lot of research, academic research that backs that up. Certainly. Oh, well, a Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> sure. And I'm, I'm guessing any financial advisor in our audience watching this right now is, you know, seeing this play out where, you know, clients can be their own worst enemies. On that note, DJ, you kind of alluded to it. You gave us a sneak preview. <laughs> you talked about what families do right and what they do wrong. Where did they go wrong with capital preservation? I mean, you know, obviously you don't need to share any personal details, but you've seen, you've, you've spoken with so many families, you've worked with so many families. What is there a pattern that you see play out where they make mistakes during times like this? Um, yeah, I would say all in general, and and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, go back to the long term mistakes, right, where they're losing their wealth, and that comes down to a couple of areas. One is the patriarch matriarch or the head of the family, right? They don't involve the next gen or others on what they're doing, how they're doing it, right? There's an education gap as a whole. And sometimes that's because they just don't share or that sometimes the kids just don't, they don't care, right? And so they're like, just give me the money. I'm going to do what I can or what I want to, right? So, but that's why I, I think real estate is such a powerful, I believe that is the solution because of it's, it's, uh, it's a hard asset. You can't just sell it. You can't just say, I'm out. You know, I think we're going to run into a problem with tokenization because of that. People will be like, I'm gone um, because they want instant gratification. So, you know, the mistakes really come down to um, uh, education, taking that long-term perspective and and making good decisions. Um, and that is where you know, as uh, Danny brought up, it's important that you you have those resources with um, advisors. You know, that are really taking a full holistic view. Not a not a, you know. Unfortunately, a lot of people say they're a multifamily office, but they're not because they're only dealing on the investment side. They're not dealing with the other issues of generational. Uh, you know, how do you transfer it to the next generations? What's going to be some of the safeguards that are in there? What happens if the patriarch dies and they want to split out the portfolios, right? What about governance? What about investment policy statements, investment committees? And if you're a high net worth, you don't have to get into those details, but you still should sit down and say, what's this plan? If I really want to carry it to the next, and and that is going to be based upon the risk tolerance of each individual, right? Some are more aggressive than others. Totally. And it's it's interesting, DJ, that you mentioned IPS. You know, I, I like to preach that if family offices do it, there's a reason why they do it, right? You can write your strategy down, write your goals down, gives yourself a little bit of accountability, even if you're a self-directed investor, right? Yeah, you're right. But what you what what is a misnomer is sort of what you said. You would not believe how families will run these businesses and they'll have goals and objectives. They'll have quarterly meetings. They'll have the best people and everything else. They don't put these in place. It's not, you know, it's like when you hear people didn't have a will in place. They don't do this. And it, and and so that's why, you know, that is a huge benefit of working with somebody because they should be able to say, all right, let's have a quarterly meeting, right? They make it happen. 
Let's review. Let's portfolio. Let's look at other investment types during this time that maybe you weren't aware of, like the equipment leasing or, or loans or debt. Totally. And, and so it, it it goes back to education and implementing. Totally. And and one other point, DJ, you mentioned the illiquidity of real estate. I like to preach, you know, illiquidity can be a feature, not a bug, right? People talk about how it should pay a, a premium if it's illiquid, which I, I guess I agree with. But at the same time, if the illiquidity can protect an investor from themselves, then I almost look at it like an asset. We're almost out of time, but so I guess I guess this is kind of a rapid fire question that I do want to give to each of you. Some of it you have already alluded to it, but uh, Josh, I'll start with you. You know, what's your favorite asset class right now, or or, or a few that you think that high net worth should be looking at? right now where, where valuations are favorable or where it's a, a strategy that you think is proven that will work, you know, in, in the phase that we're in. Oh, well, look, I'm a multifamily investor. That's what we do. That's what we're talking about. Um, I do feel like, you know, the opportunity right now is not going to be in those gateway markets where steels are still trying to trade at a three or four or five cap and cost of debt is six. It's not going to make a lot of sense. So I think it's going to be a secondary tertiary market um, outside of a growth market like a Columbus or like a Phoenix that's expanding. Um, I do feel like it's existing real estate, not new construction. The cost of debt is prohibitive. Um, and so, you know, outside of these growth markets like Columbus or outside of some of these markets in Virginia uh, where the path of progress is there, but buying an existing building and investing in an in existing building, whether it's a retail investor or family office, where the operator can demonstrate that they can execute a, a little bit deeper value add plan. I believe that that's a winning strategy. Um, and if they can secure longer term debt, because back to the question you asked Danny, uh, where do people get in trouble? And Danny said, you know, it's, it's, it's basically them. Uh, one of the ways that they get in trouble too is with short term debt. So the debt that was acquired over the last two or three years using floater rate type of loans um, with interest rate you know, caps, those caps went up and cost of mortgages doubled and tripled and people got in real trouble. So if you're managing money for a family office and they put money into that type of deal, that's how that family wealth evaporates uh, when a deal has to be sold or basically taken over by a bank. So- Again, we go back to the fundamentals of long-term debt, forcing appreciation, and me, a secondary type of market outside of a growth market, I think is a fantastic play right now. And I think as long as the operator managing the real estate executes that plan, has experience executing that plan, that's a winner going forward. Totally. And, you know, Josh, I appreciate, kind of alluded, I'm a multifamily guy. It's what I know. It's what I love. But I think that's totally fair in this kind of market environment. Uh, you know, what, what's the saying? I think it's Warren Buffett. You know, I put all my eggs in one basket and I watch that basket very closely. So I want to understand the eggs. I want to understand the basket, right? Because there's a million types of alternative investments. Some of them, you know, I understand. Some of them I don't understand anything about hardly. You know, there's all kinds of uh, crazy cryptocurrencies that I don't know the first thing about. You know, you don't have to invest in everything. If it's an asset class that you understand, maybe that's going to help you manage your own psychology around it better because that's a theme that 
from all three of you. That's a theme I'm picking up is, is a pattern you've seen over and over. Well, Danny, you mentioned equipment leasing. I know also when we spoke earlier on the podcast, you know, you mentioned you're a big hedge fund guy. Uh, what are your favorite asset classes right now? Or, or maybe I should ask, what are your clients' favorite asset classes right now? Well, I, I, I think that, again, we're a big multifamily uh, too. I think that uh, if if I have to say that if you need to jump into multifamily, I maybe would play the diff- little bit different than what Josh is saying. I think there's might be value in maybe REITs because they have already a working portfolio that are heavily discounted. And then you can get into much better pricing, uh, and then might might be a a way of of playing that as well. Uh, besides multifamily, which we love as well, everybody. <laughs> but I think ground lease is something that it makes all sense. It's very well inflation protected, very very conservative, ridiculously low to value. Again, it's a it's a it's a quasi fixed income uh, uh, strategy with a real estate uh, guarantee. So. I, we love that, and families like that as well. Uh, we do love also affordable housing in the UK uh, because it's uh, rented to housing associations that are funded by the government with 20, 30-year contracts uh, with inflation, uh, CPI plus one on a yearly basis. So you had a a real, uh, uh, you know, uh, real interest rate, you know, uh, uh, gain uh, with no risk of credit with long-term contracts. So we do love that as well. Uh, we like light industrials. I think it's also uh, pretty good and I think it's very safe uh, uh, as well. Uh, so there are different uh, ways that, that you can still play. Uh, but again, you have to look for me, whatever it's contracyclical. Right now, I think inflation, it's going to be a burden. I don't know if the Fed is going to, I don't know if it's going to hire uh, go higher, but it's going to m- maintain it for a long time, and that's going to squeeze uh, the market even more, and that lot of pain will come, and you don't want to be, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to be there, uh, you know, exposed to assets that uh, that are going to be uh, squeezed out of you, even if you are holding something that works well, and and that's something that I just want to finish. Uh, the liquidity of a, of a, of a, of a, of our markets, of the private debt markets or a real estate, uh, can be a blessing, but it's also the devil in disguise because you have to try to manage the pricing according to what it is if you want to really want to dispose it. It's not because you don't have to sell it that you don't have to price it at a real uh, market uh, place uh, price that is actually uh, helping. So I would, I would, I the way that we price our uh, you know, illiquid assets, we try to be as close as the reality, even though we don't have to. Our families, as DJ said, they don't have to sell it. But it's always good to know exactly if you need to sell it, what is the actual price? And you see that you have to incorporate a little bit of the volatility of the market as well. If not, that you believe that you are in la-la land and then you start making wrong decisions. Well, yeah, we don't want to be a la-la land. So, you know, mark to market. I mean, I, I think that's a fair point. Even with privately owned businesses, certainly private credit, private real estate, and there, yeah, I have to say, I agree with you, Danny. I mean, I'm I'm normally a private real estate guy, right? With, with the vast majority of my real estate investments are in private real estate. But I had Michael Episcope on the show a while back. And when he told me he was looking at publicly traded REITs, I'm like, well, shoot, this is Michael Episcope telling me to look at publicly traded REITs. So 
you know, that's when I started looking hard at them. And you have to admit that the, the valuation gap sometimes between the publicly traded world, the private world, it barely makes sense. But as you say, it's it's something to look at. And, I, you know, to your point about inflation, the interesting thing where we are now, you have to earn six, seven percent just to preserve capital. And that that's presuming that we're not even talking about taxes. That's presuming it's in some sort of tax advantage account. So it is a tough environment. DJ, I'm going to give you the last word, you know, working with families, obviously your work at, at Evergreen and in the Institute. What's the asset class that you're most excited about right now? Right now? Well, I will tell you this, and you guys are going to probably kill me for this, but my favorite <laughs> asset type, property type, is multifamily. I have not touched it in five years, and I, I will not touch it. And the reason why is because, one, I believe that there's a lot of people that had jumped in since 2012. Everything's been going up. I believe there's going to be um, reverse uh, or um, negative leverage which is going to create a lot of opportunities. But my answer to you uh, in this environment is anything seven cap or greater. And, uh, you know, a professor of mine one day just said, you buy high, you buy the high cap and you sell the low cap. So, you know, opportunities like uh, small bay, uh, industrial small bay, you can pick up seven, seven and a half caps. We're working on a modular for deal. We're building at 11 cap. You know, why go in to something at a four, four and a half cap when you can get something greater than that? And so it would be anything, a seven cap and greater. And the other thing would be is that if, if somebody does go lower than that, I would say that you work off an institutional uh, analysis, which you're going to have a 20 uh, bit. Um, you're going to add 20 bits for every year of the project. So if the, uh, the person that you're investing with says we're going to exit at a five cap, and it's a five-year hold, then you need to have it modeled out to say, what happens if we sell it a six cap because of cap rate expansion? And you can't focus on that of what you think is going to happen because a year ago, we had no issues with interest rates, right? We had no issues with, uh, uh, we could get better leverage. So you got to be smart. You make money when you buy and be conservative. I love it. You you make money on the buying side. I think those are words of wisdom. Uh, stupendous insights here. And I think we've run out of time officially. Uh, so I'm going to cut you all loose. Josh Cantwell from Freeland Ventures, Danny Roisman from BrainVest Wealth Management, and DJ Van Curren from Evergreen Property Partners. Thank you so much for joining the panel today. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.